Okay, welcome to this episode of the Military Mindset for Business podcast, where I'm talking to Tim Wormsley today. Now, Tim is someone I've been watching and following for many years, uh, particularly his journey into the great business bench on, which is a really good uh, study in how to get down to those basics of solving a problem in business. Um, so, Tim, welcome. Thank you for having me, Pete. Mate, it's a real pleasure. Um, like As I mentioned, we've... Uh, talked probably 10 times over the last few years as um, we've been learning a little bit about each other, particularly, you know, I've been sharing the journey about the things we've been doing in the Veteran Community Business Chamber, but I'm really interested to unpack your journey today, particularly, you know, why did you get into the military in the first place? Where did that spark or seed come from? And then take us through to that journey of, of Bench On and, and let's unpack, you know, why and how Bench On actually is. So can I just get you to introduce yourself? Where did you come from? Which part of Australia did you grow up? And why did you end up in green? Yeah, sure. So uh, Tim Wormsley, CEO of Benchon. Uh, I grew up in Brisbane um, to a, a middle-class family. Uh, went to private school, you know, had all of the, the benefits of a, of a, a middle-class lifestyle. Um, but when I sort of got to my late teens, um, I, I tended to go down the wrong path and I, I was, you know, working in nightclubs and partying all the time and didn't really have any direction. Um, even though, you know, I was, I was smart at school. I got good grades. I just, I just seemed to lose my way in my late teens. And, uh, actually my girlfriend at the time, Katie, who's now my wife, um, she decided that she didn't want this shamozzle of a life and so she was like i'm going to join the military and i was like all right good on you great i mean i'll support you through your you know your journey and uh, my intent was to run like a hotel or a nightclub you know and, and party for the rest of my life that was that was what i was going to do um so yeah so katie katie went through the process and as i looked at all the brochures and and everything i i thought it looked really cool like I thought, you know, this looked great. And actually, I, I joke about this now um, because the the brochure that got me into the military was the AGI uh, brochure. Mm-hmm. That's the Air Force, so the Air Defense Guards. Yeah, yeah, the 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 um, Air Force, you know, grounds, you know, ground protection for the for the or oh, the runways, the air bases, and that sort of thing. I know um, someone's got to cringe when I say this, but a somewhat infantry version for the for the air force no, I, I, yeah but we i have a good mate who's an agi or who was an agi he, he now he now runs rsl queensland actually but um we we give them a lot of stick in the military because or in the army side because you know the agis all all sort of go oh, we're basically the special forces of air force <laughs> And and you know the the infantry and the army would be like, no, you're you're a guard, you know, walking the fence of a, of an airfield. So there's this there's this rivalry, and and we we make fun of each other. But actually, Agi the Agi capability statement was the the reason that it got me into actually applying. And it wasn't until I got into RMC that I decided that I wanted to do something something different. But and, and just um, give a bit of Agi love out there, they they actually do. The army version of Royal Military College, I'm pretty sure. And um, in all honesty, they're probably way more worried than I ever was as a logistic officer. So yeah. yeah, they do, they do, they do the RMC with us, and, uh, but they they're they're Air Force, and then they just sort of disappear into the Air Force at the end of, of the end of RMC. And we never hear from them again. But which is why we love to give them a stick. But um, anyway, so yes, yeah, so uh, Katie was was applying and I went, you know what, this looks pretty cool. I'll apply with you just to be a supportive boyfriend. And and I got into RMC and she didn't. Um, and which was which was ironic because she really, really wanted to get in and I didn't. Um, and so I went to RMC and uh the RMC really broke me down as a as a human and built me back up to where I should have been and um did all the things that you would expect good military training to do and um, and then at about the one year mark, that's when I married Katie and I brought her down to Canberra and, yeah. um, you know, we started our life there and, and then I, I, I went into artillery. So I did, 
Everything in artillery except artillery. So I never did the guns, but I did target acquisition radars. I did um, surveillance radars, intelligence. Um, I was uh, part of the group that introduced the the unmanned aerial vehicles into Australia. Um, and then I was lucky enough to then deploy with UAVs into Afghanistan. Um, so, yeah. It's a funny thing, artillery, is when, when I went through college, Artillery was almost, uh, you know, a sec. No, well, I've got to be very careful what I say because we all love our own cause. But artillery wasn't one of the highly selected cause because, like, people, there was an assumption they weren't going to deploy or anything like that. But if you actually went into artillery, you probably got more opportunities to deploy and the kind of the kind of gigs that they did, not necessarily with guns. Although I know one of my our friends Rob Hartley got to deploy to Afghanistan with some English guns and actually did proper gunnery uh, overseas. But the range of uh, career paths through modern artillery is not just about throwing shells kilometres downrange. No. So you've got you've got air defence, which is where I started. Um, I was in uh, 16 Air Defence Regiment. Um, you've now got counter-rocket artillery and mortar which is, is also 16 uh, ALR now, so Air Land Regiment. Um, you've got target acquisition, which is the, the monitoring of incoming rocket fire and then the analysis of where those, where those rockets or artillery are coming from so that you can then affect that enemy that way. Um, intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance. So, you know, ground-based radars so that you can detect uh, movement across the battle space. You can detect um, ship movement through, you know, the north of Australia. So Op Resolute um, is 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 run by um, ISR teams from 20th Surveillance and Target Acquisition Regiment. You know, there's all these sort of cutting edge technologies that um, that are involved in in artillery, and it's not just pulling the guns, you know, and and firing the guns. It's um, there's so much more to it and, and it's a very complex environment. So I was actually really lucky to go through it and to be at that cutting edge of technology and to always be looking to implement new, new things and evolve as we went through, which I think set me up well for when I got out of the military to always be looking, well, let's look at things logically and how we can best implement this for the best effect and then take new technology and to new ideas and then implement them on top of that and continue to evolve. And, and I think um, that that was one of the keys to my success. It's an interesting mix from a capability perspective that one of the most oldest styles of you know, warfare or the profession of arms, which is gunnery, is infused with some of the most you know, latest up-to-date technology to make, you know, to have such a definitive impact on the battle space. Mm. Yeah, you, UAVs, UAVs actually, and, and drones, for, for what most people know them as, was, was a humongous shift in uh, military technology. And, and we, we faced things that we never thought we would face, like the culture of how those systems were implemented. And, and in the first few years when we implemented them, we ran into problems where commanders used these systems to monitor their own forces. Like we called it, we called it command porn. You know, they just became fixated on the TV and they just wanted to watch their own their own forces to go, well, are they at the right position? And they were, you know, calling platoon, you know, a, a CO was calling a platoon to go, you need to move up 20 metres to be in line with the, like it, they weren't watching the enemy. They weren't watching it for battle space awareness. They were, they were almost fixated on themselves. And there was, that was um, a really big learning point for us to say, well, you've got this amazing technology that can do all of these things. And we had to redirect them and retrain them to use it properly and, and to the best effect. It's interesting too, because on that note is one of the tenets of uh, the way that the Australian military does warfare being manoeuvre theory is all about supposed to be giving initiative and responsibility in those command decisions down to the lowest possible level. And all of a sudden as a platoon commander, you've got your boss literally watching you from above. Yeah. You know, micromanaging you. And um, yeah, it's a, I, I never considered it from the, looking at the blue force like that. So we made the shift then to tracking the red force and it's all about intelligence feeds. Is that right? Yeah, we, we learned that very quickly and we, we um, 
focus specifically onto that to go, okay, we need to push out past our forces. We need to give our forces early warning. We need to be able to identify what the enemy is doing before our forces see them and to be able to give them that intelligence so that they can make moves ahead of time and, and put themselves in the best position. Um, and that's how, you know, the drone system linked into special forces. It's how it linked into our electronic warfare systems. Um, and we used it as another system to, to provide another proof of, you know, wrongdoing from the enemy perspective. You know, we've, we've correlated drone footage with this vehicle movement and this intelligence report and then this um, phone report um, or, or, or phone call. And now we've confirmed that that is the target and now we can affect that target. Um, this, this really wasn't that long ago too. I think we only started getting the, uh, is it, um, is it, oh, what is it oh, sorry, I, I've forgotten the unit's name, 16. So, uh, so 20 STA, so 20, 20 STA. surveillance and target acquisition is the is the unit that, that's the centre of excellence. Um, yeah. They were the first ones to implement drones in Australia. And uh, they did that in 2005, 2006. Uh, and so that's when they implemented the first one. So the first drones were the um, Iraqi Skylark and then the um, the Boeing in situ, oh, sorry, the Boeing uh, Scan Eagle, which was, um, you know, and, and those were the two, the, the two drones we have. And now obviously we've got more, we've got the miniature drones. Um, we've got the, the big, you know, the big ones. It looks like we're going to buy Global Hawk and um, drones have now become part of, of all of the services. So uh, it's just, evolved a lot. In just that uh, under 20 years time, it's gone from being, you know, a cutting edge capability to really just status quo now. And, and the other great thing about, uh, yeah, 20 STA, this, um, Surveillance and Target Acquisition. Yeah, 16 was the ALN Regiment, from memory. Yes, uh, These were the first opportunities, I believe, in the Australian Army we had uh, women in combat course. Yeah, they were the first ones in the combat to, to bring them in, and then obviously it, it spread through all of the combat corps. But it was at that really um, that turning point of going, okay, well, are, are we going to change? And I remember actually going to RMC and going to other units, at, and actually one of our talking points was we're now taking female applicants. You know, mm -hmm. so you're, you're more than welcome to come in, and that was that was a big change, obviously, in the culture of how we ran things, and um, you know. How we, how we manage our own troops. So you had the pleasure of uh, deploying a couple of times on operations, both into Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, Iraq, was that using this like technology almost sometimes for the first time in the battle space? They did. Uh, in Iraq, we did have the Skylark um, UAV there, but I was in charge of the target acquisition troops. So we had the weapon locating radars um, and we were there to identify when the insurgents were firing rockets at the base and, and how we were doing that. So um, I, I took almost an intelligence role in, or an artillery intelligence role in that sense. And I was producing reports based on were they firing when the moon was up, when it wasn't, you know, wh what what technology were they using? What, are the, what were the tactics, techniques and procedures they were doing? And we were actually able to, in coordination with the US, we were, we were able to track that there was a... Um, a major from Saddam Hussein's artillery unit that was traveling around the battle space, training people to fire rockets. And we, we were able to identify that because of certain things that he was teaching them in terms of chalk lines to, to fire off the, the rockets. And that was all from, you know, TTPs from, or SOPs from what, from Saddam Hussein's artillery. And so we were able to track this, track his line and then we coordinated the US patrols to actually capture that person. And it completely shut down in indirect rocket fire for months um, from that point. And so I, that was my most, in, in terms of my military career, my unit there, that was our most successful trip ever because we actually cracked this, this case. We worked with the US and we, we created sort of a, a, an extended period of peace for the, for the base. Yeah, and it's. I think anyone who's deployed, you know, into the Middle East over the last, you know, couple of decades is that the the siren that goes off with the you know the, the incoming over the speaker and those two seconds where you hit the deck and wait to hear the bang and when you hear the bang, it's always a great moment because it's not you. Yeah. Um, 
Now, this is actually, you know, saving lives, you know, you know, particularly in our in our bases. Now, so what about your Afghanistan role? Uh, so Afghanistan was um, with the Scan Eagle UAV. We were supporting both the special forces patrols as well as the um, the main main reconnaissance task force um, MRTF two uh, and their patrols. So we worked with the Dutch, we worked with the Americans, we worked with the Australians, we worked with the special forces, and essentially we were we were Overwatch intelligence surveillance um, and. Uh, yeah, we we patrolled all all the valleys in Afghanistan over the top of our forces. So after having a you know a pretty let's just say interesting career with some some really interesting time to actually go play with these pretty cool toys in real time to have an influence on the battle space and not just locally but you know capturing being a key participant in you know, capturing the the Iraqi uh, major having a real influence and effect on, you know, the greater battle space. What, when are you starting to feel that you're welcome sort of up or when you're starting getting the itch to scratch that it's time for something new? Um, th there was a couple of things. So I, I planned for my transition out early um, by going to or applying to go to CTMC, so the um, Capability Technology Management College at, at University of New South Wales. Um, because I thought if I get into that capability side, it'll give me another sort of string to my bow. Um, so I went and did that and got my master's degrees, and then I got offered command. So I got my I got my own battery. Um, I, I was I was awarded battery commander, and that same month I got diagnosed with a degenerative back disorder, um, which took me out of command. So they essentially said to me, well. You can't be a commander if every sort of month you're on your back for a week. You know, you you need to you need to be a desk job. So they said, look, we're happy to put you back into OPSO. We're happy to put you into a desk role um, and and maintain that. And that's not something I was I was interested in doing because to me, I saw that as just marking time in my in my career. So I decided to use my um, my exit strategy, which was the the couple of master's degrees I got through CTMC and and jump out into industry. It's funny because for those that aren't military out there, command is a real aspirational target that we all go go for. It's almost infused in us that it's you know it's the elite path. And and I used the term before, you know, the pleasure of being able to deploy in operations, but the it, it actually is a really special thing when you get to take. Now, young men, Australian men and women overseas into combat theatres and have a direct responsibility on, on their lives and their activities. It is a super special thing. And, and when command is taken off you, it can be really challenging for, you know, in terms of what, what's next. Is this career even for me anymore? Yeah. And it was literally within a few weeks, like, you know, they said, congratulations, you've got command. You're going to be uh, BC 131 STA battery. You know, and that that had been everything I'd aspired to for you know for over a decade, and then like two weeks later, I went to the specialist, and he went, "Well, you've got degenerative back disorder. Every few weeks, you're going to be you know out of action. You can't do physical activity. You can't do all of these things, uh, and this is probably going to be permanent for the rest of your life." Um, yeah. It was it was like as soon as I got everything I wanted, it got snatched away from me like within a couple of weeks. So. Um, the key yeah. thing about command is obviously leading from the front and being able to do everything with your soldiers and you know, being able to even little things like if you can't participate in PT or throw the pack on your back and go for a march with your company or your battery, then you know, it just really diffuses everything, you know, dilutes everything that you ever, you ever thought it could be. So yeah. now we've got to this point where uh, there's a definitive closed door on the core career path in the military. You still probably got the opportunity to again keep in the capability space or do a more technical role, but that you now the prize cherry has been taken off the table. Um, how long did it take you to actually put your discharge papers in and get out the door? Did you tread water a little bit, or was it, were you done? Yeah, no, that was in May, um, and I actually left the military at the end of that year. So I I was in the OPSO position. At that point, I was meant to start my my battery command the next year. I didn't want to leave my CO 
on the lurch. So I finished out the year as OPSO, but I gave him a lot of warning to go, I'm not going to sit in OPSO for another two to four years. Um, I'm I'm going to get out. Um, but I finished out that year and, and was able to plan my time, um, develop my connections. And I started going to, you know, defense and business events and networking events and just trying to build my um, connections in industry. And uh, then I jumped out at the end of that year. And I was lucky enough to land the lottery of, of all jobs. And that was because of a network that I developed. So one of my mates, uh, Matt Jones, who, who now works at, at BAE, um, him and I, had, we, we had parallel careers our entire lives. Like, so we started as lieutenants at 16 AD, um, AD Air Defence Regiment. Um, I then went to 20 STA. He stayed at 16. And then when he got out, he went down the, the Defence Primes track and I got out and I went down the, the small business track. So so we all did things at the same, we both did things at the same time, but just differently. Um, and he actually gave me the contact that got me my first job. Uh, and I, I sent him a really nice bottle of wine for that. <laughs> but um, he, I was moving back from Canberra to Brisbane. He rang me uh, halfway and said, look, I've got this great business uh, called Pacific Aerospace Consulting. They're looking for a business development officer if you can get to Brisbane by tomorrow morning, there is a breakfast meeting with the with the managing director um, and she's willing to meet with you. I was about halfway between Canberra and Brisbane at the time and all of my suits were in boxes, you know, being moved up by toll. Like I had nothing. I was like in shorts and a shirt. So I, I drove straight through the night all the way to Brisbane. I borrowed a suit. I wrote down, like I did my research on this company. I, I with zero sleep, I ran out to, to Bowen Hills to, to meet with them and pitched my plan on how I was going to do it and and landed the job. Um, yeah. It's funny. I know one of the things I'm fascinated to learn about is your pathway into to entrepreneurship and, and how Benchron was started. But for a lot of people, uh, getting into business straight out of the military, a little bit too risky or it's not quite ready yet or the idea hasn't quite fermented. Had you started planning these entrepreneurial seeds or was it just a transition from job A to job B or the next step? Uh, it's a strange one. I, I always thought I would be my own boss at one point and there was probably four or five different business ideas I had while I was in the military and each one of them I implemented to a different level. And each one of those ideas, I learned new things about how to how not to start a business, I guess is the best way to, to put it, because none of them turned out to be real good ideas. Uh, well, they're all real good ideas. They just never were going to be good businesses for me. Um, You've got to have your tragic stories, but I remember when I was uh, finishing up in the military, I thought it would be a great idea because I used to be a cut flower grower at one time to start a cut flower sales business in eastern suburbs of Sydney. I'm like, oh, Eastern Suburbs, mate, they've got plenty of money. Surely they'll love flowers. So yeah. I tried to start a flower business. I'd go out to the markets at 3 o'clock in the morning, come back, bunch them up. I uh, didn't have enough refrigeration. Then I'd go to Army and, you know, my green all day. Then I'd come back and try and sell flowers in the afternoon. Like, just because you think it's a good idea doesn't actually mean it. So it was, uh, but you learn heaps of lessons along the way. Well, that was it. Every single one of them I learned a lesson. Like, my very first one was... Um, you know, uh, we went around, we were in DHA houses or Defence Housing Authority houses or, you know, everywhere, every posting we went to, but we had cats, bloody cats, I hate cats, but we had cats at that point and we always had our doors open because the cats needed to come in and out of the house and we got flies and everything else and I said, you know what, we need a cat door, but we couldn't request a cat door because it was a DHA rental. So I went, if only we had a, a, a thing that we could attach to the screen the sliding screen that had a cat door in it. And we could just take that with us, you know, and I was like, oh, that's a brilliant idea. So I designed it. No, I was almost to the point of paying someone to do up a, a like a prototype. And then I went, actually, I'm just going to do a bit of market research. And then I found an Australian company that did the exact same thing. They've been doing it for 10 years, you know, wow. and they, they, were, they were actually like in Brisbane, like they were, they were just a few suburbs over. And I was like, why didn't I just look up why didn't I do my market research first? Like when I had the idea and I would have just found this company and would just bought their product rather than going down this months of business development to try and create this company. So rule number one, always check the bloody market. 
when you have yeah. a great idea because there's probably someone out there who's done it. Go and check out Bunnings, mate. They're on the shelf at Bunnings. I think they're aisle yeah. five or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like so that was that was um, you know lesson number one, and then there was uh, there was another couple. At each one, I learned a different lesson, and each one was just as hard as the next. Um, but then when I jumped out, I, w- I was working in Pacific Aerospace. They were they were just an amazing company with amazing capability. They gave me a huge amount of um, initiative. I, I was able to run the country for them in terms of business development and strategy and and where we were going. Um, so so I really did land the lottery of jobs because I was able to work from home on the Gold Coast and just travel wherever I needed to. So jumping out of the military, that was really exciting. But one of the one of the key issues I had coming from a military background was I dropped my routine. You know, routine is is paramount in the military and, and you get used to it. And then when you jump out and you're the master of your own domain and you can do whatever you like, I dropped routine and and you know what? That led to mental health issues it lent to productivity productivity issues um like my whole world started to unravel because i thought oh, i don't need to do those things anymore um and there was a point where i actually went you know what i, I need to go back to my roots like i need to go back to what worked and i implemented a military you know um regime and routine and I'm going to do this at this time and and I'm going to do this at this time. And um, that sort of got me back on track. Uh, and that was, a, that was a big learning coming out of the military. Um, that it's the interesting routine. You that. It's interesting yeah. to talk about the routine because, um, you know, when people find out that I was in the army, they're like, oh, you're so self-disciplined or this and that. Well, to be honest for me, that's, that's a total fallacy for me. Like confessing, I, I, I actually struggled with that. And it was only the fact that I had to turn up at PT at seven o'clock every morning that mm. I was fit because I had to do it. And right. I'm the same as you, once that structure was taken away from me, you know, I struggled with, you know, my weight and my health and uh, until I was actually able to find something you now, which is boxing now and if how I have my routine, I have to turn up and I have to, I have to have that structure. So that structure is really important because for me, I am a flawed human in terms of sometimes my, self-dedication and desire outside of that structure i need that framework to guide me along otherwise it, it is a challenge for me yeah 100 percent. and i had to implement that and then i had to give myself reasons to want to do that stuff so now i do trail running long distance trail running and um, by training for events i need to do a certain amount of kilometers and a certain amount of runs every day and that gets me up because i've got to do that stuff before work and you know, you have to almost put these self-imposed limitations on yourself to go, you, you need to get up and get this stuff done. Because otherwise, you're right. We, we're just naturally like, oh, whatever. Like, I'll pay that off. But as soon as you do that, you see your life unravel so fast that you're like, no, I need to impose my own restrictions to get back to that sort of military way of life. To go, you have to be here or else. Yeah, I, I lived in a state, I've said this before, almost in perpetual fear when I was in the military because I was always had to be on time. You know, we don't get any sick days. Like if you're sick, they'll send an ambulance out to come and get you to take your hospital. If you're that sick, you go to work and then you go see the doctor at work. And if the doctor says, you know, okay, you can go home. But there was no calling up saying, hey, I'm not coming in today. That just no. didn't happen at all once in my 12 years. And that and was it. That, that 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 whole thing. My my dad actually said to me, he goes, if you want to learn to run and you're, you're having trouble getting out of bed in the morning, just get dressed. All you have to do is get to the letterbox. If you get to the letterbox, dress for a run and you want to go, then go back to bed, you can go back to bed. But if you get to the letterbox, he goes, I guarantee you, you'll go for a run because you're up, you're dressed, you're outside, you'll just run. And it was yeah. the same. The military is really smart in doing this, right? You can't just go, oh, I'm calling in sick. You had to get up, get dressed go into work, go see the doc, and then get approval to go home. And by the time you got to work, you're like, I'm um, not really sick. You know, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just do it, you know, like. Plus morning yeah. teeth around the corner, so. I'm yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just want to go back a little bit here um, about being the ideas guy because for me there's a big thing between, you know, being an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur. And if you're the, if you're the ideas guy in a business, like, well before I ever joined the army, like I, was, I used to work on a lot of farms and 
I'd always come up to the farmer like, oh, I've got a different way to do this or a different idea to do that. And ultimately they'd be like, it's my farm, mate, not doing it like that, doing it my way. Right. Uh, and it, But I threw, actually the military was a bit different because it didn't really allow that kind of creativity, particularly in the roles that I had. But if you're that ideas guy, you're probably an automatically setting yourself up to be an entrepreneur, business starter, business developer sooner or later. Mm. Um, you're just testing, you're just waiting for that right thing. So you're in Pacific Aerospace, um, loving your job. Um, why do you leave a great job? Um, I, I put this down to um, almost, almost ignorance. <laughs> it's a good thing, you know. Coming out of the military, point, you know, like yeah, yeah. I, I came out of the military. I had no understanding of how industry worked. I had no understanding how to sell things. Um, I didn't understand commercial, you know, um, realities or anything like that. And so I was learning all this from from scratch. Um, and and I've always said it came down to that red flag system. And you might remember this from the military, you know, when someone goes, oh, that's just the way it always was, or that's just the way we've always done it. You know, as an officer, you'd be like, well, now I have to check that. Like, I can't just take your word that because we've always done it that way, that's the best way. Like I need to investigate this and determine if it's the most efficient, most productive, the best way to do things. Um, and that's the way I went into industry. So I went in there with a blank slate. I took everything that people were saying at, at sort of face value. And then I would question certain things and go, but, but why is that the case? And, and people would often say, well, it's just the way business is. You've just got to deal with it. And I'd go, but why is that that way? Like I wanted to understand why it was just business as usual. Um, and the more I asked those questions and the more I investigated, the more I found gaps and the more I found, you know, that it wasn't as logical as you would think uh, the, the reasons people did things or the reasons that businesses made these decisions. And um, the best one was, you know, we, we lost a contract. Like I'd, we put a lot of work in, we won this contract. Um, it was, it was up for renewal um, there was a there was a budgetary issue from the Commonwealth. They said, "Look, we've got a, we've got a six week gap before we can make a decision on this. So just stand down. We'll come back to you." And you know, we couldn't afford as a business to to keep these people on the payroll. So we were like, "Well, we've got to let you go." Uh, and they went and got new jobs. And then the Commonwealth came back to us six weeks later and said, "Well, you know, we're ready to go now." Like, have you got your staff? And we said, "We don't. We've we had to let them go because we couldn't keep them sitting on the bench." And um, when I talked to my boss, he sort of said, well, that's just the way business is. It's peaks and troughs. And, you know, we hope to survive long enough through the troughs to get back to the peaks. And sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. And you just have to get used to it. And Hang on, mate. I've got to stop you there. Have you planted the seed for the segue now? The sitting on the bench. That, that was it. That was it. That was the, the, the bench, right? Like that was it. We, we had these people sitting on the bench in the troughs, right? That's exactly what it was. Thinking the ideas guy now is just like, man, you know, like we've got a problem here. Why are these dudes sitting on the bench? Exactly. And so then I went, what do you mean we, we just try to survive through the troughs to get back to the peaks? Like can we not create some sort of a system to find more work in the troughs and get these intelligent, highly skilled people off the bench working on things until the next big project comes up? Um, but I, it, it hadn't connected at that point. And it wasn't until about two weeks later, I was sitting inside one of the Prime's um, offices and, and I was trying to sell our wares there and trying to find new contracts. And one of their staff, you know, slammed a phone down and he went, the bloody government, you know, we told them six weeks ago they were going to need two engineers. Um, you know, they ignored us. And now they ring today going, we need two engineers by tomorrow because we've got a huge problem. And he goes, I don't just have engineers sitting on the bench just waiting for people, you know, for their phone call. And that was the clicking point. That was like, it was like this fuse that went off that it was like, oh my God, SMEs have all of this excess staff sitting on the bench at different times because they can't find work and they're struggling to survive. And then you've got these huge companies that are like, I don't just have a bunch of people ready to drop, you know, when things go wrong. And I went, well, what if I could link up all of that excess capacity with the, the companies that needed it? And that was the light bulb that, that I went home and I literally spent the next six hours that night writing a business plan. 
And I was like, I literally, I was up all night and, and I, I, my wife got up in the morning and I was trying to explain to her in my manic state what I'd come up with because um, everything in me told me that this was the idea. You know, I told you I had multiple ideas through the military. You, you get it. You get this feeling inside when you know that this is the one, this is the idea that's going to work. Yeah. And you're but like, this is, this is super exciting to me to hear this, like, because, you know, as a fellow ideas guy, um, it's almost like the big bang or something. And then, the dust particles start swirling, but nothing's formed and you, you just can't like, it's just not crystallized. And yep. then you're thinking about it and you think about it and slowly these little bits join together and all of a sudden you've got something. It doesn't mean it's really well defined, but you just can lay your finger on something and you go, I don't know what it is, but I've got something here and I, and I want to run with this. Um, my, only, my only problem is that, is that I have one of those about you know once every other day and it's, it's only for <laughs> a business partner now, Matt, who basically goes, the Matt's primary job in our business is just to go, no, mate, no, no. But, but I love that at that moment. So Katie calls it, so her job is managing the Mad Hatter's tea party. Yeah. And so she goes, you're the Mad Hatter, and you come in and go, I've got this idea. We're going to do this, and it's going to be great, and we're going to go here and there and there. And she just goes, no, stop. No, yeah. That no person is so important in any business and, like, you know, it's you know, there's books about it. You know, rocket fuel and traction and all that kind of stuff describe the visionary and the integrators. But for me, I'm really blessed to have a business partner like Matt, who was one of my dungeon classmates, to be that leveler, to be the balance. Uh, you know, the yin and the yang. Is mm-hmm. you know, so Katie's is that her role in the business as well, or is this just her tempering you just in as a partner? A uh, bit of both actually yeah. so so at the start when i was pitching this idea she had no idea what i was talking about she was just like i can see you're very excited i'm excited <laughs> for you i don't understand what the hell you're talking about but you know if you want to bounce it off me then go for it and i did for like weeks i just that's all i talked about and i manically walked around and just whiteboarded everything and i systems engineered a whole platform and um she just sort of looked at me politely nodding and then over time she really got an understanding of it and uh, and then I, I kicked it off, right? And I started getting companies and I got clients and I, 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 I built a platform and I got accepted into an accelerator. And um, and then I said to her, I said, look, I, I can't do this on my own as a side hustle. I'm still got a full-time job with PAC. I need you to help me set up the back end. So she, you know, and, and because as a, as a military wife, she, she jumped around jobs. So she'd done financial controlling, accounting, um, operations. She'd done sales. You know, she did all of that like she understood how to run a company. Yeah. All I knew was the idea I had, you know, and and so I brought her in and said, I need you to help me set this up. Um, and then over time, as the company grew, uh, she ended up quitting her job because I needed her full time. And I ended up quitting PAC because I needed to be on it full time. And um, and that's how she became the COO and the the naysayer to my, to my yeses. So... In this, the, the crystal is well and truly formed now. We're, we're running with something. Can Had you ever read any books like The Lean Startup or any kind of, you know, MVP kind of philosophy? Can we just unpack, you know, what your minimum viable product was that you tested to market? Yeah, I didn't know what minimum viable product was and, and I got accepted into the Blue Chili Accelerator Program, um, which which taught me about a minimum viable product. It put me onto the, to the lean startup, um, you know, and I, I then understood the, the, I guess the smarts of, of starting with a concept and just testing and adjusting as you went through. I mean, testing and adjusting was a big military thing and I got that, but when I had the idea, I, I systems engineered an entire platform to a gold standard and I went, this is this is what my business is. And then I took that to an IT company and I said, how much is to build this? And they went, oh, that's going to be a million dollars. And I, I was like, I, I'm never going to be able to pay you that, you know. <laughs> so I, I thought the business wasn't going to work. And then when I went to Blue Chili, they said, no, no, you, you're, you're doing it wrong. Like you, you have the great idea. So what's the minimum thing you need to prove that idea? And it was, you know, this very basic website with a very basic sort of database system where customers could enter what they wanted and other companies could enter in what they do. And then manually behind the the scenes, we would match those up. So that whole like 
the the duck feet under the water moving a million miles an hour. So Benchon looked like a very seamless professional system, but behind the scenes, me and Katie were running around going, this company can do that and that company can do that. How do we match them and who do we ring and how do we find companies? And we were like going crazy behind the background to try and make these things match. Um, but we learned thousands of lessons that evolved our product and our our portal and and over seven years we've now developed something which in no way resembles what i what i designed on day one um and that's because we designed it based on what the clients wanted and what our customers wanted not what we thought they wanted it's a saying i don't know where i heard it but uh it's something along the lines of if you wait to take the perfect product to market you're well and truly too late already so yep. just being able to take this, you know, this crystallize this idea, and it's a real challenge for us. Uh, you know, you already instinctively knew this was a good idea, as well as Katie and your mum and your best mates as well. But does the market think it's a good idea? And that's right. the challenge you now. Like, how do we get something out there and then let the market test and adjust us and, and improve and we listen and improve what we do? Um any connection with the way that you used to listen or learn or ISR feeds or how did you gather data to really know what the market was looking for so that you could evolve this product? Because it's it's well different today to what it was in that first little, hey, let's swap people off the bench. And so just, just to talk about that first model, can you just describe what you did to help talent get out of the peaks and troughs? Yeah. Um, so my original idea was an automated platform that um, any company that needed contingent support, and when I say contingent, contracted in support, um, not hiring them permanently. Um, I needed a project manager. I needed a logistician. I needed a systems engineer. I needed an aerospace engineer, whatever it was, for a set period of time. I would put it into a system and then the algorithm would go, well, here are the businesses that have that person on the bench with the skill sets within the price range and they're willing to subcontract them to you, you know, and, and in that way we would make sure that there's no underutilized talent. Um, that that idea is still how it works now, but the the way in which that works is very, very different and the processes that you go through are very different. Like one of the things we learned early on was conflict of interest. You know, companies didn't want to be putting out there for everyone to see what they needed. I've got a job. This is all the requirements. These are the skill sets I need and I'm willing to pay this much. They don't want people seeing that because their competitors will see it and therefore know what they're trying to do. So we had to implement a conflict of interest gate that allowed companies to test the water and say, well, here is some uh, bits of information. If you're interested, tell me who you are and I'll tell you whether you're allowed in. You know, mm -hmm. so we put these sort of need for need to know controls in place. And, and that was a big game changer that, that changed things. And, and that was put in place just by talking to the first sort of 15 to 20 companies that we were working with. Um, so how did you also manage like, so if I'm a company that has an engineer and the engineer's got some downtime, does it also work in reverse in terms of protecting your IP when that engineer was going working elsewhere? Yeah, so um, we also we also learned that what we were doing was not as revolutionary as we like as we wanted to make out. Um, we were simply enabling subcontracting, which which happens all the time. You will get an auditor from KPMG to come into your business and audit your books and then go back to KPMG. And you're not going to think about, well, I'm stealing KPMG's employee to do a task for me and I'm going to steal their IP and then they're going to go back. You're employing KPMG to audit your books. I'm, I'm, I'm employing, you know, this project management company to provide project management services for me for three months so that I can get this task done and then they're going to go back. Um, and there was, it was the way that we expressed it. You know, you're not, you're not sharing stuff. You're not, you know, it's not altruistic. It's nothing like that. It is simply a system that will tell you when people need what you have as a business. And we had to sort of temper the way that we, we explained it because we tried to explain it in this, you know, over the top way of, oh, you know, if you've got excess capability, other businesses can use your staff and all these sorts of things. And people 
were having these weird reactions. Like I had a woman say to me, there is no way I'm going to let any other company have access to my staff because my staff are, are the reason that my business is successful. And um, if I give them access to my staff, then their business will be successful and I won't be. Um, so I would rather see my staff let go than share them. Mm. And I went, wait, that doesn't make sense. So you would rather fire your staff so they go and get jobs at your competitors rather than keep them and be loyal to them and earn revenue for your business using the staff that you have. And she's like, yep, 100%, no one's going to get their hands on my staff. Now, I talked to her a year later and her business was a third of the size when I first spoke to her because she had to let go of so many staff. And I asked her whether her staff went and started working for her competitors. And she went, yeah, those disloyal bastards went and got jobs at all my competitors. And I was like, do you, do you hearing what you're saying? Like, you, you're, you're cutting your own nose off to spite your face. But that was the culture of business. It was like, these are mine and no one can have them. So we had to we had to evolve. It wasn't about the function of matching. It was about how do we sell it? How do we get inside people's minds to explain? This is just about using your capability and your capacity better to earn more revenue for your business and create stability rather than some altruistic like, oh, well, my, I've got someone on the bench, so I'll lend them to you for a bit. It's not you're not lending them. They're paying you for a business service. Just do a job. It's, it's a really simple way to describe it. And it just comes back to those you know, basic business principles about income and expenditure. Exactly. Now, it's shifting the balance. It just seems to be like a, a simple, prudent business decision. Right. And so that was that was a big learning for me because I felt like I was banging my head against the wall because I had this great idea and there were a whole bunch of businesses were like, this is fantastic. And then I go, okay, well, you're going to use the platform. And they go, oh, it's just not for us because we don't like to, to share our staff. And yeah. it's like, you just told me you were having trouble finding the talent you need for your projects. You were just telling me that you're having trouble with employees being on the bench and you're having to let them go. And I don't understand why this isn't for you. And, and it was all about, well, we don't like to share our staff. And um, that was... Yeah. It's interesting because those two words that we use in business, you know, productization and commercialization, it's just feeding a different revenue source by... Um, productizing that talent to be a subcontracting source of revenue for you. Right. I have uh, an admin assistant that works three days a week. Um, she would love a full-time job. I can't employ her full-time because I just don't have the revenue for it. But you know what? Through this system, I could get a contract for my business for you to support another company for two days a week. And therefore, my employee now has full-time work. I get the three days person. And my business is actually earning revenue to counteract the money I have to pay you on the three days. So now I'm actually making more money as a business. You know, what I, sorry, Matt, I interrupted after you. No, that's right. And that's just when you when you look at it that way, it's like, well, I don't understand why that was in the early days so hard to capture. But I just think I think the platform was ahead of its time and it took COVID to really hammer this point home to go, well, we all need better ways to manage our capability and our staff and our employees. And we were perfectly suited when that hit. Let's um, unpack COVID in just one moment. But the reason I got excited and I was just about to jump in there is what's beautiful in business is like when we have a win-win relationship. But this mm. isn't just win-win. This is win-win and win. Yep. Because it's not only us, it's not only our, let's call them collaborator, not a competitor, but it's also our team member who's getting more experience, more skills, you know, when we, whenever we can get this, uh, you know, triangle of a win-win-win in any relationship, there is good things happening for everybody. And, and too often, we're too protective, we're too scared in terms of our own, uh, you know, fears about you know holding on to everything that we look at our competitors as competitors rather than potential collaborators. And if yeah. we have more worthiness in our own product and our own skills, we should be able to see that the market might just be big enough for everyone. And there could be some win-win-wins here. That's exactly right. And that's, that's, that is the reason that one of our values at Bentron is win-win-win. If oh, you can't create a win-win-win, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you, create, if you can't create a win-win-win situation, you're either not thinking hard enough or it's not worth doing, you know, and that's, that's how we operate uh, because we have seen those win-win-win scenarios right from the start. And, um, yeah, that's, that's the way we set everything up from... 
that wasn't scripted. That's just uh, great minds think alike there, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, actually, when you said it, I was like, boom, this is perfect. I can line this up. Yeah. Um, so let's quickly go through the pandemic because that, for me, I first spoke to you like literally in lockdown and it seemed to be a really cool model at that time because it made sense. Companies were like really in a total state of flux about, you know, their jobs, everything was changing. You seem to have just a fit for purpose, right time, right place solution. Yeah. Um, you're right. Everything everything went to hell um, very, very quickly. And uh, there were entire industries shutting down. Um, everyone was in a panic. There were other industries that were flying through the roof, like IT, help desks, um, the supermarkets, all of these, all of these industries were like, we we don't have enough people, and other industries like the airline industry would just like shut down completely. And we 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 heard of of scenarios where you know the captain of a an A three eighty aircraft was now stacking shelves at Woolworths just to keep money coming in, and all of those horrible things. And there were a whole bunch of companies jumping in to try and help, um, and. We, you're right. We were perfectly placed. So the, one of the examples of of how we helped transition tr- across industries was uh, Rugby Australia. Rugby shut down. Obviously, there was no games, um, and they couldn't keep their staff on the books because they were all they had nothing to do. Um, so they turned a bench on, and and we would do things like their senior marketing manager, who's like who was so, so well-educated and so highly experienced. Um, We mapped him to a small disability startup who had a very specific new product that they developed for COVID, you know, to help businesses. And um, they needed to get that marketing underway. So we matched them to the senior marketing person at Rugby Australia who came in, developed a marketing plan, helped them with their advertising and launched a campaign in two weeks at a fraction of the cost that that person would cost, you know, because all Rugby Australia wanted to do was cover the salary of that person and keep them employed. So now this small startup was able to hire this extremely experienced person to get this new product off the, off the ground. And, and it was so successful. Um, Rugby Australia kept their marketing person on the books. The, the startup got their new product launched. Everyone was a win-win. Like it was a win-win situation. Uh, in the middle of the pandemic when everything was doom and gloom. And that, to me, was was the reason why we did it. So where have you taken Bench on to its next level? Because it's not just about talent now. There is procurement and tendering. There, You have been able to expand this or, like, build onto the crystals like some crazy conglomerate, going back to my year four geography. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not the right word. But, you know, we're, we're actually building this thing on now and still listening to the market. Where have you taken to bench on today? Where have you taken bench on to today? Yeah, so our vision now is to create a, a digital industry ecosystem that fully maps out where all the capability and capacity is across all businesses, across all industries, and then be able to reallocate talent, products, and services whenever and wherever it's needed. And, and by doing so, what we do is we create resilient industries that you know, we have businesses that are diversified in their revenue streams. They can create more jobs. Um, they can tap into more companies. We've got supply chains that are resilient so that when our international supply chains get cut, you've got an automated system that can redirect those supply chains to local sources um, to keep those businesses going. Um, and a good example would be during COVID when when we needed to to make more PPE, um, you know, it was a shambles the way they tried to do it. They put up forms on government websites going, if you're a factory and you could do these things, please tell us. It took months and months just for the government workers to review those forms and then to contact the companies. Like in, in a digital industry ecosystem, they could simply put in, this is what we need. This is the this is what we need to be developed. The system would allocate them to the businesses that could do that. And those businesses could go, yes. And we could have PPE developed within weeks, not six months, within weeks, because we've got smart, intelligent matching of capability to where it's required. Um, just on that note, is have we also created the ability 
to get more small and medium businesses involved here, straight to government, straight to big corporate, because they've got the access to match that capability and not have to go through a multiple bureaucracy of tender and all this kind of process. Yeah. So if you look at all the systems today, put yourself in the mind of a small business. If I'm going to win work, I have to be um, registered on at least 15 different tender sites. You know, every state has their own tender site. There's, you've got Oz Tender, you've got Vendor Panel, you've got ICN Gateway, you've got all of these different portals that I can find tenders on. And you have to be registered for the right things at the right time. You need to know that the projects have come out. So you need to hear that in the news. You then have to go search for that project, find where the project page is, register yourself against it to then find out what's going on. Like it is a huge amount of work for a small business to find where they could help out. Whereas in this system, if I'm a business and I create one profile and I say, these are all the things I can do, and then that out, there's a smart algorithm behind it that goes, well, actually, this project's looking for you and this company's looking for you and your, your capabilities required here in another state, in another industry that you never would have thought of, that you've never had relationships with before. All of a sudden, my market is, is exploded. You know, I've got, I've got this huge opportunity and I'm, uh, all these things are brought directly to me so that I can expand my business fast with some sort of confidence that when I hire people or I expand my factory or whatever, I, I know that the opportunities are there. And that's, that's what we're trying to do. And that's the, that's the fundamental change. So we introduce tendering, we introduce business intelligence, you know, like the state government, Transport and Main Roads, they through their portal, which is Supply TMR, um, they have the ability to delve into the entire Queensland supply chain to say, what's the depth of manufacturing capability in trains? Or what's the, what's the total number of companies that can provide project managers in northern Queensland? Or how many contracts have gone to remote businesses or Indigenous businesses um, through these projects? So when you talk about including more businesses, uh, a system that doesn't care about, you know, um, where you're registered or whatever, I, I will allocate work to a remote company in outback Queensland that has what they need for this project in Brisbane. If the project in Brisbane can facilitate an, an out of an out of location response, so now that company that that might have only known their small local network is now linked into a major project in a major city simply because they're the best person for the job. This um, can be, be game-changing. You know, accessing these kind of contracts can move, you know, move things to having you know, intergenerational consequences on the business if you can, you can win one of these. But as you mentioned, the administrative burden without a platform like BenchOn is just prescriptive from even doing it. So right. in terms of your businesses, if I'm here listening as a business owner, what kind of businesses should be getting on and checking out bench on uh, give us a rundown big small left right up down sure so um federal state local governments um and large government you know global enterprises or enterprises that are managing big supply chains should be talking to us about creating a workforce and industry portal so that they can manage their own supply chains they can allocate their own tenders their own workforce opportunities and then have business intelligence into the depth of capability within the, their own sphere of influence. Um, and any SME um, that provides a service should be, should be on board. It's completely free to sign up. You create one profile. Um, there's a portal marketplace that allows you to pick and choose which portals you want to be a part of. So do I want to be a part of Transport and Main Roads in Queensland? Do I want to be a part of Hanwha Defence Australia and help them build the new um, generation of infantry fighting vehicles for the Defence Force? Do I want to be a part of Disaster Relief Australia and volunteer the time of my underutilised staff to help our remote, you know, um, communities get back on their feet quicker? Uh, because I, you know, I'm a network engineer and I could go in and help a remote, you know, a remote community get their IT network back up and running. Or, um, you know, there's so many different options there that, and because it's free and because it, it, it is so simple to sign up, I just don't, I, I think everyone should be a part of it. Um, and the more companies that we have, the more opportunity there are for everyone involved. Look, what I, what I really like about this is that you've, being able to solve a one-to-many problem by focusing on a platform-based solution, 
Like you could you could have kept the business, you know, at hey, pick up a call, hey, I need some of this, very manually be able to, you know, link, uh, you know, link the talent on the bench with the company that needs them. But you've been able to take this to, you know, a platform way of thinking. And you know, for me, systemize, automate, delegate is like my three mantras. How do we build great process? And with that great process, how do we express it through the right platforms? And then once mm-hmm. we've expressed it through the right platform, how are we empowering our people? Because there's one thing about military mindset for business, platforms are combat multipliers and they're game changers. Yep. So you, you know, the reason the military invests in you know, F-35 and as we look towards AUKUS submarines and things like this, a platform can provide such a leveraged effect in terms of how you can not only well, in the military influence battle space, but in business, how you can influence your effect you know, into the business environment. So just the platform way of thinking is just such a great way to shift from one to one, one to many. Um, yeah, thanks. Mate, um, man, I could talk about this stuff all day because I really love it, but um, I might just draw to a bit of a conclusion and I just want to ask you a couple of things to wrap up. Number one, um, what's next for Benton? Where, where do you see this thing going? Um, so winning the the transport main roads contract and and uh, providing that portal. So th- there's something like twenty seven billion dollars worth of infrastructure projects to go through that in the next you know few years. Um, that has scaled us up, and it's also put us on the map against all of the the big competitors, including the government funded competitors that are out there. Um, so we're now in a different sphere. Um, this year is our scale year. So we will be growing as a business. And my current predictions show that we're going to have to grow as a company by about five times um, this year uh, in terms of employee staff. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's that's going to be busy. But where we're going is um, that that real digital industry ecosystem and building out, um, you know, government ecosystems is is where the future is. Um, creating state government ecosystems where all of their departments have their own portals, they manage their own supply chains, but as a small business, I'm registered in once and I get access to all of it. Um, and, and we'll be expanding that across more states uh, as, as we go forward. So at the moment, we're focused in Queensland, um, our, our portals are focused Australia-wide and New Zealand, but um, from the government side, we'll be expo- you know, expanding into the other states very, very soon. Um, for those listening in the car, I love the body language of you rubbing your eyes and your forehead as you're talking about five times growth and stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Lucky you've got, lucky you've got the, the talent and access through Benchon. You'll, you'll be able to find your way. Um, a couple of quick questions to wrap it up. What was your best experience in the military? um my best experience there was there was a couple but firstly that the Iraq experience the team I had with me um you know the the, the young guys that were there uh and, and all doing such a fantastic job and having such an, an amazing outcome at the end of it was was really the highlight uh of my time and then um the the friendships that I made with the soldiers that, that I deployed with particularly in my lieutenant and captain years were were, were definitely you know, key highlight for me. Perfect. Um, any key lessons that um you can share as a last point? You know, what what would you do? What if you had your time again? What would you do? Or what's one key takeaway that you'd like to share with another business owner? Nothing happens as fast as you think. You know, I, uh, Katie and I always talk about this. If we knew that it was going to be seven years of hard slog to get to the point where all of a sudden worked, would we have done it again? Um, you you need persistence. And and this unwavering, almost arrogance to go. No, I'm I'm backing this, and I'm not going to give up. Like tenacity, I guess is 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 our biggest um, our biggest virtue and our biggest lesson. And and we employ that every day. And it's the reason we're still here. So um, if you don't have that tenacity and that drive to never ever give up, even when things are the darkest that they've ever been, then um, rethink what you're doing. Well, I can still see you holding on to that excitement of that first night when you got in and wrote the business plan. And now that excitement is still there in terms of the belief in the product. And from a product to market fit perspective, what what a great lesson in terms of getting to the market at the right time with the right thing. Mate, let's wrap it up there. Um, You know, I really have enjoyed watching your story, particularly, uh, you know, as a veteran business owner. 
you know, we need to tell more of these stories, you know, more of these great success stories about, about how, you know, men and women of all ranks, services, um, how they can come out and really have an impactful impact, you know, on the world, you know, after the military career. So, mate, thanks for joining us today on the Military Mindset for Business podcast. Uh, I will be seeing you next week at the Avalon Air Show and, uh, you know, watching you engage with all these primes and, and I'm really looking forward to supporting you know, uh, other veteran-owned businesses get into you know, getting these contracts and working through the Benchon uh, platform in the future. Really, mate, great chat. I really appreciate it, and thanks for your time. No, thanks, mate. Good to chat. See you next week. Um, thanks, everybody. So that wraps up this episode of the Military Mindset for Business podcast. Do that click, like, share thing. Uh, help us out. Throw us a bone there. Uh, Pete Liston, out. <laughs>